Welcome to the Paranormal States of America. I'm your host, John Devine, and on this episode, we're discussing some of the paranormal activity in Washington, D.C. This is a special episode that will cover all types of activity in the city. When we're discussing paranormal activity in Washington, D.C., some of the names of people and places are the most recognizable in the country and even the world. A ghost story takes on a different significance when the spirit is that of a past president or other prominent figure from American history. Beyond the government, politics, and history that act as the lifeblood of the nation's capital, there's a darker, more mysterious side that lurks just beyond the headlines and the history books. In the 1860s, spiritualism was gaining popularity among the upper classes of American society. Picture the scene, a group of wealthy men and women dressed in their finest evening wear, sitting around a table. A medium would join them at the table, guiding the proceedings, welcoming their guest of honor, the spirits of the dead. In 1862, Mary lost her 11-year-old son William to illness. Losing a child is the worst pain a parent can experience. Sadly, this wasn't the first time Mary had experienced this pain. Twelve years prior, she lost her son Edward at the age of three. The grieving mother welcomed mediums into her home that claimed to be able to communicate with the spirits of her beloved sons. Mary's husband was more skeptical of spiritualism and the mediums that entered their home to assist Mary in hosting seances, but it gave his grieving wife hope and was otherwise harmless so he didn't stand in the way. He even joined some of the sessions to support his wife. Mary told her half-sister about the successes of the seances. Willie lives. He comes to me every night and stands at the foot of the bed with the same sweet, adorable smile that he always had. He does not always come alone. Little Eddie is sometimes with him. However, after holding several seances in her home, Mary gave in to social pressures and ceased the gatherings. After all, Mary wasn't just your average socialite. She was one of the most well-known women in the country. Her address is one of the most recognizable in the world, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. The White House. But as we know, her son Willie wasn't the last family member Mary Todd Lincoln would have to mourn. Three years later, her husband, President Abraham Lincoln, was assassinated on April 14, 1865. President Lincoln is said to have had a premonition of his own death. One night, he dreamed that he was walking in the White House and heard the sound of sobbing. Searching for the source of the sound, he came upon a group of mourners gathered in the East Room. He saw that they were gathered around a covered corpse, soldiers standing guard around it. Lincoln asked one of the soldiers, Who is dead in the White House? The soldier replied, The President. He was killed by an assassin. President Lincoln's ghost has been sighted in the White House by numerous presidents, first ladies, and visiting dignitaries, including Winston Churchill. Churchill visited the White House during Franklin Roosevelt's presidency, staying in the Lincoln bedroom. After completing a bath, Churchill got out of the bath to retrieve his cigar without dressing. Walking into the bedroom, he saw the ghost of Lincoln standing by the fireplace, leaning against the mantel. Upon seeing the apparition, Churchill, who was still undressed, greeted the legendary figure. Good evening, Mr. President. You seem to have caught me at a disadvantage. 
Presidents have always had the echoes of the past guiding their actions, but it seems President Lincoln wants to check in from time to time to make sure the country he died holding together lives up to its promise. In between the metropolises of the eastern states, smaller towns and sheltered communities dot the landscape. This was even more true in the early days of the country, when even our biggest cities were just starting to grow. Within these communities, it wasn't uncommon for stories of horrible creatures and other unearthly phenomena to grip entire towns with fear. In the late 1600s, the fear of witchcraft and demonic possession led to the Salem witch trials and other witch trials in other areas up and down the eastern seaboard. We now know it wasn't witchcraft, but instead mass hysteria that possessed the people of Salem. But many are unaware that there was another case of the supernatural being the suspected cause of death of townspeople in the eastern states. This time the finger was pointed at a new suspect, vampires. They called it the Great New England Vampire Panic, and it lasted from 1793 to 1892. In the late 1850s, a teenage girl from Washington was attending a function at the embassy of an Eastern European nation. There she met a young aristocrat from the host country. A few nights later, the young girl met up with her new love under the light of a full moon. That was the last time she would be seen alive. Her pale, lifeless body was found the next morning with two puncture wounds on her neck. The young aristocrat was never seen in the area again. The girl was buried in her family's vault, and that would normally be the end of the story. But several weeks later, the girl was seen again in the same white gown she was buried in. She was first seen by a woodworker entering her family's burial vault, which had been sealed after her burial. He was shocked by the sight of the dead girl walking about the cemetery, but was terrified by another new trait of the girl, fangs protruding from her mouth. A few days later, a stable worker was found dead, drained of blood with two visible fang marks on his neck. Of course, this led to speculation that the girl was now a vampire. A group of locals gathered at the cemetery and entered her vault. There, they found the coffin open and the girl lying in it, fangs fully visible with blood at the corner of her mouth. But instead of doing what you would normally do with a vampire and driving a stake through her heart, they instead just put the lid back on the coffin and left the vault. Needless to say, the vampire continued to haunt the area. After another death with the same signs of vampirism, the girl's family left the neighborhood after threats from the neighbors. Their mansion remained empty for years before another family moved in. But they didn't stay long after reportedly seeing the girl with fangs looking in an a window on the upper floor. After that, there were no more stories of the vampire girl of Washington, D.C. Maybe she moved on to another area to continue to feed. Or maybe she's still around, being more discreet about her kills. The Octagon House was constructed in 1801 on one of the first private plots of land purchased in the new federal city. It was meant to serve as the winter home for John Taylor III and his family. Taylor was one of the wealthiest men in America after the Revolutionary War and was a friend of George Washington. Taylor was the heir to his father's iron and shipbuilding interests in Virginia. He also owned many lots in Occoquan, Virginia, where he served as postmaster, and his stagecoach line stopped in town. The house is built on the corner of New York Avenue and 18th Street, squaring to face both streets, accommodating the acute angle of the lot it's built on. 
The design of the structure combines a circle, two rectangles, and a triangle. Today, the unique house is situated in the middle of office buildings just a few blocks from the White House. The house is believed to be haunted by two of John Taylor's daughters who are said to have died by falling down the staircase after having arguments with their father. Well, although there are sightings of the two young women on the stairs, there is no evidence that they died in the house as the stories go. Another noted ghost in the octagon is Dolly Madison. The Madisons lived in the octagon after the British soldiers burned down the White House during the War of 1812. Other ghosts are said to belong to slaves who would ring the serpent's bell at all times of day before the bell system was removed from the house. There's a lot of history in the walls of the octagon, and it's not surprising that more than a few ghosts still call it home. There are thousands of haunted buildings in the United States. It's no surprise then that the National Building Museum has a few spirits residing in it. The building was built in 1887 to process pensions for Civil War veterans, giving its name as the Pension Building. There are 15 Corinthian columns in the museum, and security guards have reported seeing the marbling change shape to look like people and even skulls. Other guards have seen an apparition of a man on horseback in the upper levels of the museum. The site of the building was used for horse stables during the Civil War. One spirit that has been seen in the building is that of John Tanner, a stenographer who took witness statements after the assassination of President Lincoln. Interestingly, Robert Todd Lincoln was the Secretary of War who approved the construction of the pension building. Hotels have held many important roles in the horror genre. The Overlook Hotel in Stephen King's The Shining gave a whole new meaning to the words cabin fever. The Ghostbusters were hired for their first job by the Sedgwick Hotel, and most recently, American Horror Story did an entire season in the Hotel Cortez. Hotels see millions of guests every year, and sadly, at least a few don't check out. And just because that room is available for a night's stay, it doesn't always mean that it's unoccupied. Washington, D.C. has two hotels that have at least a few permanent residents. The Omni Shoreham Hotel was open during the Great Depression. Henry Doherty was approached by the owner to become a minority shareholder during the Depression, which he agreed to, and on top of giving financial support to the hotel, he and his wife moved into a suite of rooms. The Dohertys brought with them expensive furniture, art, Persian rugs, and even china from Napoleon Bonaparte. The hotel's executive housekeeper, Miss Juliet Brown, stayed in the large suite with the Dohertys. As the story goes, she woke up one morning feeling ill, and when reaching for the phone, she died suddenly of natural causes. She was found when one of the hotel staff members noticed that the phone had been taken off the hook, so he investigated, finding Miss Brown dead in her bed, the phone receiver still in her hand. After Miss Brown's death, the Dohertys adopted a child, a girl named Helen. Sadly, she also died in the suite. The reason for her death never confirmed. Some attributed it to suicide, others to a drug overdose. The Dohertys continued to live in the suite until the early 1970s. By the time they left, the original hotel was deteriorating, with holes in the ceilings and fungus on the carpets. After the Dohertys moved out, the paranormal activity began in the guest rooms surrounding their suite. Televisions and lights would suddenly go on at 4 a.m. around the time of Juliet Brown's death. Housekeepers reported that their carts would be moved and re people reported feeling a breeze as if someone had just run by them. 
1975, a guest was staying in room 863 when he called the general manager with complaints about the noise the past two evenings in the room next to his. The room next door was the room where Miss Brown had died. He was told that no one was staying in the room those two nights. Since the 1970s, the hotel has been redesigned, redecorated, and restored. The suite of the rooms has become the presidential suite and is available for booking as the ghost suite. But the Omni Shoreham isn't the only haunted hotel in D.C. The Hay Adams Hotel stands on the former site of the homes of John Hay and Henry Adams. It is located adjacent to the White House near Lafayette Square. The first known death at the hotel was of its owner, hotel magnate Julius Manger, who died in his suite on March 29, 1937, at age 69. But the ghosts of the hotel go way back to the hotel's origins. Marion Clover Hooper Adams, wife of Henry Adams and resident of one of the original houses on the site, is said to haunt the hotel that now stands where her home once was. She was depressed after the death of her father and also likely from the reported affairs of her husband. One day she was found by a member of the household sprawled on the rug in front of the fireplace with an open bottle of potassium cyanide nearby, which she often used in her hobby as a photographer. Staff of the hotel say that Clover is most active during early December, the anniversary of her death. Doors mysteriously open and close on their own, and a woman is heard softly crying, and her sorrow-filled voice is heard. Some housekeepers have reported being hugged by an unseen presence. Her spirit is usually found on the fourth floor and has been known to ask, What do you want? and call housekeepers by name. People have reported the smell of almonds when the spirit of clover is near, which is similar to the smell of the potassium cyanide that was found near her body. The relationship between the news media and the politicians of Washington is oftentimes contentious, but it usually remains professional. But in the late 1800s, one event left a dark mark on the United States Capitol. William Talby of Kentucky was a popular, ambitious politician. His tall build and his ability to capture the attention of audiences earned him the nickname of the Mountain Orator. First elected to Congress in 1884, he was popular with all, all except for Charles Kincaid. Charles Kincaid was trained as a lawyer and was elected to be the municipal judge of Lawrenceburg, Kentucky in 1879. He edited a weekly paper and went to Washington in 1885 to be the private secretary of Senator John Williams. In December 1887, Kincaid wrote a piece in the Louisville Times that said that Congressman Talby was having an extramarital affair with a young woman who worked in the U.S. Patent Office. According to Kincaid, the pair had been found in a compromising way. The article destroyed Talby's personal and political life. His wife of 17 years left him. Voters turned against him. He decided not to seek re-election, but stayed in Washington as a lobbyist. This meant that Talby and Kincaid would run into each other often. Insults and threats were exchanged regularly. Some altercations even turned physical. With Talby being six foot two and strong, and Kincaid being shorter in poor health, Talby always got the better of his weaker foe. Talby had Kincaid living in fear. The beatings he took from Talby were getting to be too much, and he had to find a way to defend himself from the brutality. It all came to a boiling point on February 28, 1890. Kincaid was at the Capitol building to interview a member of Congress. Talby arrived and, seeing an opportunity to harass his nemesis, approached Kincaid. 
I have no time to talk with you. I don't want any trouble with you, the reporter told Toby. Toby, ignoring his plea, grabbed Kincaid by the shoulder and started pulling on his ear like a schoolyard bully. I'm a small man and, and I'm unarmed, Kincaid said, to which Toby replied, You had better be armed or go and arm yourself. Two hours later, the pair met on the steps of the Capitol's restaurant. Kincaid pulled a gun and shot Toby in the face. Blood poured from the wound and covered the marble stairs. William Talby died from his wounds on March 11th. And what happened to Charles Kincaid, the reporter who killed a former United States congressman in the Capitol building? During his trial, his defense was that he acted in self-defense. Eight current and former members of Congress testified about Talby's threats against Kincaid. On April 8, 1891, a jury returned a verdict of not guilty. Today, 130 years later, there are still faint bloodstains on that marble staircase. Reports say that the ghost of Talby is still present on the staircase, tripping up unsuspecting journalists on the stairs. In the early morning hours of March 22, 1820, Stephen Decatur paced around the second floor of his house situated on Lafayette Square across from the White House. He had fought in many important Navy battles, but today he faced a battle that had a 50-50 chance of an ending in his death. Stephen Decatur was a Navy legend. In 1804, he commanded a secret expedition to destroy the captured U.S. frigate Philadelphia that had fallen into enemy hands in Tripoli. In the War of 1812, he captured the British warship Macedonian. In 1815, he was dispatched to the Mediterranean Sea, where he secured a peace treaty between the United States and Algeria, ending the Algerian War. James Barron had a less-than-stellar reputation in the Navy. He served alongside Decatur in Tripoli, but wasn't as skilled of a leader as his colleague. In 1807, Barron failed to resist a British attack on his flagship, the Chesapeake. Stephen Decatur sat on the court-martial that expelled Barron from the Navy for five years. In 1818, Decatur vocally opposed Barron's reinstatement into the Navy, insulting him to anyone who asked his opinion. James Barron challenged his former colleague to a duel, and Decatur accepted. The details were set. March 22, 1820, 9 a.m., at the Bladensburg Dueling Grounds in Maryland, as duels were not allowed in the city limits of Washington. The two men, former brothers-in-arms, stood eight paces apart, pistols pointed at each other. Both fired at the same time, and both were hit. But Decatur was hurt worse. He was taken back to his house in the city. His hips were smashed by the bullet, and several arteries were severed. His final hours were excruciating. He died 12 hours later. James Barron recovered from his wounds and was reinstated in the Navy. In the weeks that followed his death, people started to see Stephen Decatur appearing in the second-story windows with a dreadful look on his face. The sightings became so common and frequent that the windows were bricked up. Some have reported seeing Decatur walking down the stairs of the house and out the back door, pistol in hand, ready for the duel. Thank you for listening to the Washington, D.C. episode of the Paranormal States of America. Our road trip continues next episode when we start our look at the state of Maryland. If you're enjoying the show so far, please click the subscribe or follow button on your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends about the show, too. If you have any feedback on the show, you can send an email to theparanormalstatesofamerica at gmail.com. Until the next episode, I'm your host, John Devine, signing off from the Paranormal States of America. Thank you for listening.